Uh, do please be seated, brothers and sisters, and keep your Bible open at that passage, that is Matthew chapter 1, which is on page 961. You just heard read. Uh, that is our preaching text for today, so please keep that open. Wonderful. Well, if we're all ready, uh, why don't I pray and ask God for his help before we study his word together? Let us pray. Oh Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be pleasing in your sight. O oh God, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Now, brothers and sisters, this passage before us today, and therefore this sermon, is the natural continuation of last week. We started in Matthew's gospel last week with the genealogy, and we are continuing. Uh, and so before we proceed, I'm going to briefly summarize what we learned last week. And I'm going to do so in three brief points, okay, three points. Number one, death is the chief context for our lives. Death is the primary fact which we must all grapple with. Death is the, the great shadow that hangs over us all. And no one who comes out of the maternity ward will ever escape the mortuary. We are all born astride of the grave. That's point one. And as we remember that as we look to the genealogy last week, we're reminded of that, that first genealogy in the Bible in the book of Genesis, which repeats the phrase, and he died, and he died, and he died, and he died, right? Death has dominion over this world. Point two, the root cause of death, the reason that we die, is not physical. It's not illness. The root cause of death is spiritual. It is sin. It is our disobedience of, our rebellion against God. And this disposition, this nature, this corruption of who we are, we inherit from Adam. So when Adam rebelled against God, when he disobeyed him, he did so as our representative. And that means that when Adam fell, we fell. So we bear his guilt. We inherit his corruption. For this reason, we imitate his action. And therefore, ultimately, we share in his curse. The Apostle Paul puts it succinctly. He says that sin came into the world through one man, that death came through sin, and so death spread to all men. That's the second point. Death, like sin, is hereditary. We, we take it from our forefather, Adam. Now, here is the third and the last point of recap. The rest of Scripture, uh, the, the whole of the Bible from Genesis 3 onwards, uh, the outworking of biblical history is God's response to that problem. It is God's response to sin and to its consequence, death. And to put it simply, the way that God responds to that problem throughout history 
is in a promise, and specifically in the promise of a son. So, for example, to, to Eve, God promised a son who would conquer evil. Uh, to Abraham, he promised a son who would reverse God's curse. And to David, he promised a son who would restore God's rule. So, in other words, in, in answer to the death of mankind, in the answer to our death, the death of every man, God's answer is the birth of one man in particular, one son. And so therefore, throughout the Bible story, that the question that we ought to be asking, that we're, that we're told to ask is this, is this one the coming son? Is he the promised son? Is it Isaac? Uh, could it be Jacob? Is it Judah? Or maybe perhaps it's Joseph. Maybe it's David. Perhaps it's Solomon. Well, the point that Matthew makes right at the start of his gospel is that Jesus is finally that promised son. Jesus is the one in whom all of God's promises meet. He is the fulfillment of all of biblical history and all of the expectation. So when Matthew says in his very first sentence that Jesus is the son of Abraham and the son of David, remember, he's not saying that Jesus is a son like Abraham or a son like David. What he's actually saying is that Jesus is the son promised to Abraham and the son promised to David, the son who reverses God's curse, who restores God's rule, and who ultimately conquers sin and death. So that's where we left off last week. Death is the chief context for our lives, as well as the entire biblical story. It's the backdrop to everything. That death comes through sin, and, and specifically through the sin of Adam. But finally, death will be defeated by Jesus, who is the promised son of Abraham and David. And so, brothers and sisters, if you followed that last week, or perhaps if you didn't, what you'll be relieved to hear is that actually this week, this sermon, and this passage tells us much the same thing or develops the same idea. Because for Matthew, the question of who Jesus is, the identity of Jesus, what he has come to do, continues to be the chief concern. Right? Who Jesus is is the main point. And that may seem very obvious, but actually I think it is quite easy for us to miss. Because as we look at these verses, we could get distracted very easily. Because Jesus doesn't do anything here. Right? Joseph is the one who receives the vision from the angel. The angel is the one who speaks to Joseph. Joseph is the one who goes and, and does things. And, and Mary is the one who uh, conceives under the power of the Holy Spirit. So we might think that all of these other characters are really the focus and the center of the story. But actually, Matthew is really quite explicit. He tells us in verse 18 what this entire passage is about. And he says in verse 18, if you look down at that, it's kind of like the, the heading for the rest that follows. The birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. 
It is the birth of Jesus Christ. That's the important thing. Jesus is the center of this passage. Jesus is the character that matters. What we're supposed to ask is, is not what does the birth of Jesus tell us about Joseph or tell us about Mary or tell us about the angel or tell us about anyone else. We're supposed to ask the question, what does the birth of Jesus tell us about Jesus? And in answer to that question, I think Matthew is really telling us three things. Three things. And this sermon is just going to to try to go through those. Number one, Jesus' birth is through God's miraculous power. Now, actually, that that is immediately obvious, isn't it? That that Jesus is is not conceived, he's not born after the ordinary natural means. We see that in verse 18, that Mary was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And the angel confirms to Joseph in verse 20, that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. Spirit. So Jesus' birth, unlike our birth, is not according to the power of man or the the decision of man or the will of a husband, but it is through directly God's power and the agency of the Holy Spirit. That's point one. Now, points two and three is where I'm going to spend most time. Point two is Jesus' birth achieves God's purpose, and three Jesus' birth fulfills God's promise. Okay, so one, two, and three. His birth is through God's power. It achieves God's purpose, and it fulfills God's promise. That's where we're heading. Uh, But before I do that, before I just try to explain that, I I do want to just think about one thing in particular. I'm going to sidetrack. I'm going to address an issue of biblical interpretation. That how is it that we read the Bible? How do we understand the Bible? What are the tools that we can use? And there's one tool that I think is really important that we see time and time again, and that is this, right? The works of God are interpreted by the Word of God, right? The works of God, what God does are interpreted, they are explained by the Word of God, what God says. Now, in history, we say that 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 means Scripture interprets Scripture, or as I put it, uh, God explains what He does so that we don't have to guess, right? God actually tells us what's going on. And the classic example of that is in 2 Kings 17. There you get a statement, and then the statement says at the beginning of the chapter, the king of Assyria captured Samaria, right? A very simple statement of historical truth. But what happens immediately after that, and for 20 verses following, is this. It says, this occurred because dot, 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 dot. In other words, what happened is really short, really simple. The explanation of that, the theological reason, what the reason it happened follows for 20, 30 verses. And the reason I'm raising this, and the reason I want you to know, 
is because our passage today, I, I think, is a textbook example of that basic principle, that Scripture interprets Scripture, that God explains for us what is happening. And so if you look, verse 18 of our passage is the description of what happens. And, and that is really very short, right? I've read it before. Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, and before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit, right? That's what happened. Mary and Joseph are, are uh, bonded together. Uh, uh, they are betrothed to one another, which means effectively they're husband and wife, but yet they haven't come together in marital union yet. Uh, and so when Mary is found to be pregnant, uh, then Joseph naturally concludes, according to, to nature, that that the child must be the product of sexual immorality. And so this is where the explanation from God, the explanation from the angel, becomes very important. So we see here that there are two interrelated explanations of what's happened. Right? So if you look down, the, what happens is in verses 18, and then we get one explanation in verses 20 to 21, which is made within the narrative to Joseph and through the words of the angel. There is a second explanation that complements it in verses 22 and 23, which is made outside of the narrative, and it is made to us, the readers, and it is through the comment of Matthew. And what that means is this, right? If, if we're reading this story, Matthew is telling his story, he's telling his narrative, telling his story, then he stops. And then what he does is he enters into his own narrative and he actually explains what is happening. And then he allows the narrative to continue. Now, when that happens, that's really important. We need to pay attention to that because that's when the author is breaking into the story to tell us, to help us to understand things. And so that's where I'm going to focus on right now is I want us to have a look at verses 22 and 23 because Matthew tells us, verse 22, all of this, everything, everything that he says before, all of this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet Isaiah Verse 23, Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel. Now, brothers and sisters, that quote there is from Isaiah chapter 7. We need to briefly understand the context, what's going on in that chapter. What's going on there is that two kingdoms had risen up against Judah and against its king, King Ahaz. And for that reason, Isaiah is sent to Ahaz by God, and he tells him not to fear, not to be afraid, because those two kings would fall. But as we read, and as we read in the passage, Ahaz refused to believe God's word. He refused to believe God's promise. And instead, what he did is he trusted in the king of Assyria. He thought that the, the king of another nation would come and deliver and save him. And so God promised, as confirmation of his word, a miraculous sign. 
And that is what we read here. This is the sign that is supposed to confirm God's word. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son. There is a dispute about whether this was fulfilled in part in Isaiah's time or whether it is only fulfilled now in the birth of Christ. But whatever the, whether that's true or not, the main point for Matthew is that Jesus is the true, is the ultimate fulfillment of that promise. Jesus is the demonstration that God delivers his people. Jesus is the demonstration that God is with his people, that he is Emmanuel, not just with us in a sense of a buddy-buddy kind of way, but with us in a strengthening, fighting with us, fighting for us way, that he is with his people and against their enemies. And so what happened in Ahaz's time, and when God promised deliverance from Israel's enemies, is a picture of of God's response to his people's true enemy, to our enemy of sin and death. And I think it is for this reason that the angel tells Joseph in verse 21 that the son that is born to Mary shall be called Jesus because he shall save his people from their sins. See, the word of God, the word in ancient prophecy, the the word that came in ancient promise, the word that then came in the naming of Jesus, the word which interprets the work of God in the virgin birth, tells us that God's purpose, his purpose to save us from sin, the purpose that he promised many, many years ago has been fulfilled in the birth of Christ. Jesus was born for this reason, to save his people, to save us from our sins. That is God's purpose, and it was according to God's promise. Now, brothers and sisters, I do suspect that we already know that. That is essentially the message that you will hear week after week if you come to this church. But perhaps we can dig a little bit deeper into this text and we can ask, how is it that Jesus shall save us from our sins? Uh, And I want you to understand another principle of how we read the Bible. Matthew knows that when he's writing his gospel, he's writing something which is extraordinary. He's not writing an Agatha Christie novel. It's not something that we're going to read once and just throw away and never read again because we already know the ending. Matthew expects that, that we're going to read his book, we're going to read his gospel again and again and again and again and again, a second, third, fourth, fifth, sixth time for the rest of our lives. And therefore, what he is expecting is that we will read the beginning in the light of the end. That we will understand what's happening in chapter 1 in the knowledge of what happens in chapters 26 and 27 in the death of Christ. And so when we see that Jesus will save his people from their sins. We might ask the question, where in Matthew do we see that language? Where do we see Jesus saving his people from their sins? Where does Matthew bring us to that truth again? 
And then we go to the end of his gospel, to the night in which Jesus was betrayed, the night in which Jesus took a cup, and he gave thanks and he gave it to his disciples saying, take and drink. This is my blood, which is shed for you for the forgiveness of your sins. In other words, what Jesus is doing there is he's doing that the same principle actually that I just outlined a moment ago. He is interpreting what his death means. He is helping us to understand what that event in history, what its significance is. So when we actually read the crucifixion in chapter 27, in the next chapter, the, the description of it is really short, right? It just says, and they crucified him. That's it. It's not like the Mel Gibson movie, The Passion of the Christ, where it goes into to long detail and, and, and kind of gruesome and gory detail. No. It just says it because it's in the pre preceding chapters that all of the meaning, all of the importance, all of the significance is explained to us. And chiefly, when Jesus celebrates the Last Supper, what he is saying is, this is the way you are to understand my death. My body is broken for you, and my blood is shed for you. Why? Because this is the way that your sins will be forgiven. This is the reason that Jesus entered this world. This is the reason he became man. This is the reason he took on our flesh so that he could take that flesh and carry it in his perfection and, and glorious obedience all the way to his death. Where he would pay the penalty that we deserve, the penalty that is rightly earned from our disobedience, the penalty that we inherit from Adam. And there, being nailed to the cross, suffering our penalty, he might achieve for us our forgiveness and our hope of eternal life. The answer to our death, that chief context in which we all live, is the death of Christ. For whilst all of us here are born to die, we are born to die in the sense that Death is the natural result. That is what's going to happen. My daughter was born last year. She's going to die. But whilst all of us are born to die, it's only Jesus, really, who was truly born to die. He was born for the very purpose of dying. He was born for that very reason. So that through his death, he might raise us to new life. That through his birth, he might grant us second birth. And so, brothers and sisters, before I close, I want to consider one final thing. This passage teaches us many things about Jesus. But also it teaches us things about ourselves. And the one thing I want to close with is that the birth of Christ, that miraculous birth, that birth that, that comes through the power of the Holy Spirit, is also a pattern for our spiritual rebirth. The Bible tells us that those who trust in Christ are born again. 
that the beginning of John's gospel says that, that those who believe in Christ, we're, we're not born of a husband's will nor of a man's desire, but we have the right to be called children of God. We are born of God. We are born again. If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. He is the product not of the power of man, but of the power of God, the direct intervention in his or her life. Because Jesus represents a radically new humanity. He is unstained by sin and he is incorruptible. He is a, a break from the tarnished line of Adam. And for us who are in him, we have been brought into him through that same miraculous power. And we are sustained by his grace in and through him. And conformed more and more to the likeness of his perfection as the image of God. Brothers and sisters, the birth of Christ happened according to the almighty and great power of God. It is, it is the chief miracle of all Scripture. It happened according to the purpose of God to save you and I from our sins. And it according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. It was according to his promise. And so, brothers and sisters, let us lean whole and entire upon this Christ. This Christ who was born of Mary, born through the power of the Holy Spirit for the forgiveness of our sins. And let us grow more and more into his likeness in the resurrection life as those who are born again in him. Let us pray. Our gracious Father and our God, we thank you that in the fullness of time you gave your only son, your eternal son, to be born of a woman and born under the law to redeem us who had broken the law and were under your curse. We thank you that he was born to die in our place, that we might be forgiven before you, having our every sin cleansed. And we pray with thankfulness that you have worked your mighty power in us that you have risen us to new life in him. You have granted us new birth, that we are a new creation in Christ. And we pray that you conform us more and more to his image and likeness. And we ask this through the name of that same son, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.